Morning, everyone. All right, so here's the deal. Let's make a deal, right? It's awful dark out there. It's a little bit early in the morning. No sleeping. Although, to be honest, if you did, I really couldn't see you. So if you're a sleeper, this is your one free day. After that, and even today, we might just spend, send Pastor Dan around just to kind of tap people on the shoulder who are doing the little nap jerk thing. There he goes. Um, hey, welcome to E3. Again, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to start by asking you guys a simple question. How many of you guys were at the awesome E3 kickball game last week? Okay, basically this section over here, I understand a great time was held. We had uh, some excellent kickball form. There's one. T- Is this the winning team or the losing team? Anybody can tell me? That's the winners. I think we have another picture of the second place or first loser team, as Mark likes to call them, um, somewhere in there. Um, I couldn't make it. I, I heard it was awesome. I think there was just a couple injuries uh, that happened, but basically we availed ourselves pretty well in terms of church sporting events. I, there's no... There's no, like, dicier place to be than at, like, a church softball uh, game because, like, those church people get a little, like, crazy uh, when it comes to competing. But uh, Levi and I uh, were thinking about going, but we weren't able to go because we had a a soccer thing going on, which is better than kickball, but that's another story. (laughs) But maybe, maybe um, there's another thing going on with me. Uh, You see, kickball was one of the few sports for me in elementary school that I was actually halfway decent at. I'll just be honest. But any sport that's associated with elementary school or middle school for me always brings up that awful feeling of what if I'm not picked until the last part. I don't know how you guys came up with the kickball teams, but maybe that was going on. It was like, man, I'd hate to go to my own church's kickball game and be like a pastor and be like, does anybody want Eric? Maybe he can, like, sing or something and be like this. So, so maybe I may or may not have avoided the kickball game because I didn't want to be picked last. Anybody else have that part of their elementary school uh, heritage of just like, oh, man, again, like, last in four square, last in kickball, last. There's something about that feeling that lasts with us, Is, does it not? That, that feeling of, like, being lined up in front of two people Two teams, and they're picking, and your heart is just sinking as everybody gets picked, and you are getting closer and closer to the end, right? There's something inside us that, like, we just clench up a little bit all over and be like, I, I hope I'm not the last one chosen, right? Can I get an amen? Because I can't see you guys. Thank you. I just want to make sure I'm not completely off the mark here. Um, There's something about being chosen that is so human. It's just a part of who we are. We want to be picked because it says something. It says we matter. We matter to whatever's going on. According to whatever requirements or rules to this activity, we matter. We're important to it. And it's deep. Uh, One of my favorite stories, I read this in a like uh, some kind of free weekly thing back years and years ago. There was a story of a guy who was, uh, he said he was waiting on the L platform in Chicago. And this is what an L platform looks like. It's just a huge expanse, you know, and you wait for the trains to come in. 
And he said he was standing on the platform down at the end, and it was rush hour. And so there was a ton of people just standing on the platform. And he said a guy that appeared to be most likely homeless, um, he was on the platform as well. And he was walking down the platform, and he was walking up to people. And he wasn't like physically accosting them or anything, but he would come right up to them, and he would look at them right in their face, about, about this far away from their face. And then he'd look at them, and he would either do this, or he would do this. And then he would just move on to the next person. And this guy's standing at the platform, and he's watching this happen. And he said, the funniest thing started to happen, that about halfway through, he's like, I don't know what this guy is saying yes and no to. I don't know what he's picking people for, but I want to get the nod. I want to be chosen. He's like, I don't know if this guy's like choosing who to kill or who to invite over. But he's like, I want to get the nod. And I thought that was so interesting that there is something inside us, I think, that is so human that we want to get the nod. Even when we don't know what the nod really even signifies, we want to be picked if there's something that, is, that we're picking for. Because it says, according to the rules, according to what's important to this activity, I matter, right? And I think in a way, that's what we're talking about when, when we think about the Beatitudes. That Jesus is saying, here's what matters, here's who matter in the kingdom. And I thought Pastor Dan did such a great job the first week of saying, a really interesting place to start is to contrast the Beatitudes for the world's Beatitudes. Any, anyone remember any of those world's Beatitudes that Pastor Dan did? I remember like one was like, blessed are the stoic, right? For they need no one. You know, and you just think like, if according to the world, who does the world pick? Blessed are the strong. Blessed are the powerful, right? Those are the world's Beatitudes. That's who the world picks. That's what the world picks, okay? And when Jesus lays out these beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, in a way, he is saying, here's who God picks. And so the inverted series is really just taking a look at the fact that God picks people on sort of the underbelly of all of the world stuff. But before I go on, we're talking talk about um, pure in heart and peacemakers, before we get to that, I want to push a little bit more into this because I think Jesus does something even more radical. Because not only does the world have, beat, have beatitudes, but churches have beatitudes too. Okay? E3 has beatitudes, right? Like if Pastor Mark was going to stand up here or Dan or myself or Lori, and we were going to say, here's our beatitudes, we would say, hey, Blessed are those who are members of a growth group. For you shall know other people, and they shall know you deeply in community. And you will feel what it's like to be supported in your darkest hours. We would say, blessed are those who are owners. Because you know what it's like. You are invested in this community. And we can trust you when the going gets hard to dig in and build this thing with us. 
We would say, blessed are those, okay, watch it, blessed are those who give. Because we know God has set you free from greed. And we know that you are invested in building a ministry that might outlast you. We would say, blessed are those who serve. For you hand out fridge folds, and you serve coffee, and you play music, and you make this thing work, right? That would be E3's Beatitudes. Jesus, in his culture, would have, could have, should have said something like this. Blessed are those who study their Torah, who meditate on it day and night. Because that's what the scripture said you should do. Blessed are those who go to temple, who go to Jerusalem with your offerings the required amount of times every year. Blessed are those who participate in the synagogue. Blessed are those who help others. And he says something about helping others. But what strikes me is that Jesus doesn't say any of those things. According to the religious climate, according to the religious beatitudes that he should have said, he didn't say anything like that. What's he lead with? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He never says anything about studying the Torah. He doesn't say anything about participating in the synagogue. He doesn't say anything about being a member of a growth group. He says, leads with, blessed are the poor in spirit. So Jesus even inverts who's in and who's out according to the religious context. See, as a, as a, as a church worker, as a pastor, I mean, that challenges me. Because Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who are owners of E3. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Sometimes I think if Jesus stood up here in this space and was going to pronounce the Beatitudes, and maybe you're here at E3 for the first time, maybe you've been here a long time, Jesus might say something like this, hey, blessed are you who've never been to a growth group because you're too scared. God blesses you. Maybe... You're late every single Sunday, not because you're irresponsible, but because it's everything you can do to get out of bed because you're suffering from depression or you're scared. And Jesus said, blessed are you because you're here. God blesses you. Maybe you don't pray. Maybe you've never opened your Bible. Guess what? God still blesses you and wants to bless you. Okay? Like, sometimes we forget how subversive these beatitudes are. Jesus is not interested in making the church people feel better about themselves. He wants everybody who is a loser spiritually, who feels like they're on the outside spiritually, who feels like if there was a, 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 a sort of a, a rabbinical kickball game, a Jewish kickball game, a church kickball game of who the best church people are, maybe you're in this room today and you'd be like, man, if there was a church kickball game, if it was like, hey, who's the best Christian? Boy, I'm like, last. Guess what? Jesus says, bless you. God blesses you. I think that's awesome. The spiritual losers God wants to bless. Okay? We're going to deal with a couple statements um, as, as, as we've been going through uh, we looked at justice, mercy, uh, humility, meekness. Today, we're going to look at two, uh, two statements Jesus makes, and we're really just going to deal with words for a, few, for a little while. 
Just the simple words that Jesus is used, Jesus uses. So first he says in verse 8 of chapter 5, Matthew, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. This is one of these statements that like I read, used to read for a long time, and I'm like, oh man, I hate that, right? Because who in the right mind would, would come out of the gate and say, I'm pure in heart. Is it just me that feels like awkward again? Like, so I've gone through a lot of good times in my life. I've gone through a lot of bad times in my life. I don't know that I could ever go through a time where I've said, man, I've been pure in heart. I got like 25 days of heart purity going on, right? I don't know. It just doesn't work that way. We think, and so this is what I thought. I thought pure in heart, I mean, it's kind of a goofy illustration, but I thought like this is what, a pure, this is what pure, pure in heart looked like, right? An unblemished, clean, white sheet. I got nothing in my conscience. I got nothing in my mind. Everybody I meet, I have like compassion for. I have patience. I have kindness. I have love. I got, that's not my life, Okay. And I don't think it's your life either. I don't know everybody in this room, but I know a lot of you. Trust me, this is not your life. (laughs) And it ain't my life either. But it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I think about myself, well, I don't have purity in heart. Am I not going to see God? You ever thought that? How do we see God if, if our sheets aren't white? And there's, uh, there's a couple different ways that I could talk to you about this, but this is what kind of got imprinted on my, on my mind. I don't, I don't know that purity in heart is so much about having a perfect white sheet or a perfect unstained, unblemished life. I think purity in heart might be about being willing to keep short accounts with God and short accounts with people. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to mess up. The sheet's going to get writing on it. I woke up this morning, I got this white shirt, and I'm like, I got an ink stain on this thing. I have no idea where it came from. And this is all I'll see for the rest of the day is this little bitty thing. I don't know how these stains happen sometimes. We just wake up and there's a stain on our sheet, right? You're a little short with somebody. You're grumpy. We can't keep this clean, people. But you know what we can do? We can repeatedly go back to God and go back to other people and say, hey, I need to talk to you. I made a mistake. I messed up. Okay? And what we're talking about when we talk about that is the word confession. (sighs) Uh Uh-oh. Did he just go there? Yes, I just went there. That's a word that we don't talk about a whole lot in the church, confession. Some of you grew up in a church where that was, that was a, something you did regularly, you know? Well, maybe it gets a little twisted around, like, well, what does confession mean? Confession is a way to stay pure in heart because it keeps your account short with God. And I want to suggest to you that confession is nothing more than sitting with God and with one other person. 
and saying, I got stuff to get off my chest. That one other person thing, that's the thing that I think we struggle with. Because most of us like our spirituality to be this me and Jesus thing, right? Well, me and Jesus will sort it out. I know I did some stuff yesterday. I know some, I made some mistakes. I stayed up too late. I drank too much, this, that, and the other. Me and Jesus will, short, will sort it out, right? And some of us, that's the way we live our life, and, and that works to a point. But you want to keep a short account with God in a real way. You want to be pure in heart in a real way. I want to suggest to you, you invite somebody else into your junk. Not to be shamed. Not to have somebody go, man, you are messed up. <laughs> I don't know. Don't text me anymore. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with you now. It's not the point. Here's the point. When your spirituality is just me and Jesus, you know what you're able to do? You're able to keep a little bit of pride for yourself because you don't have to tell somebody just how messed up you are. You can pretend. And I want to tell you that one of the worst things you can do in the spiritual journey is to pretend. Because pretty soon you stop pretending, and that starts to be your reality. So confession, inviting somebody in to say, I need to share some stuff. I need you to know a little bit more of the real me. In a church I used to belong to, we used to call it sharing the last 10%. I need you to know the last 10% about me. Not so you can point a finger at me, okay? But so that I can release my pride. And I can have one other human being on this planet know that I'm not perfect. And then you can look at me and go, you know what? Guess what? I'm not perfect either. And, you know, we can look at each other and go, like, Boy, this is what it means to be human. Like, I'm broken, you're broken. This is cool. Keeping short accounts with God and with other people simply means being honest with our brokenness. But being willing to reach out of this me and Jesus spirituality and saying, I need you to know what I struggle with. And here's the deal. I was thinking about this. It says the pure in heart will see God. I don't know what it means to really see God, but this is what occurred to me. When my pride is blown up within me, when my self-centeredness is just full-on inflated, right, I can't see anything else but me. I can't see God. I see Eric at the center of the universe, and he thinks he looks pretty good at the center of the universe. When I invite somebody else into my life and I say, here's the truth of who I am, and that pride gets pushed down a little bit more, and that humility comes in a little bit more, and there's a little bit less of me, guess what I see? I see a little bit more of God in my life. The pure in heart are not the, 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 the super Christians. The pure in heart are not the best of the best. It's not Pastor Mark. It's not me. It's not Dan. It's not Lori. It might be Lori. I don't know. <laughs> That's not the pure in heart. 
The pure in heart are, hey, my name's Eric. I struggle with pride and arrogance. You know that about me? I do. I do. And when it blows up within me and it swells up inside me, I stop looking at anybody else but me. I don't see God. But when you know that about me, and by the way, you can't shake your finger at me and go, oh, I don't know if that guy could be our pastor. Me and God are fine with that. And me and Mark are fine with that. I don't think you want a pastor up here who can't admit his faults, do you? So when that stuff stays down here, then I see a little bit more of God in the world. That's all it means to be pure in heart. Keep a short account with God and keep a short account with, other, with somebody else. You mess up with somebody, go to them. Hey, I, I, I screwed up. I need to apologize to you. Will you forgive me? And if they wag their finger at you, if they try to shame you, don't, don't receive it. Just be like, you know what? I admit there are consequences to my action, but you cannot shame me for this. I am free. I am redeemed. I am saved. God knows me. God blesses me. Done. End of story. See ya. Right? All right. We good? All right. So Jesus goes on. He's not done yet. He's never done. Next beatitude, he says, blessed, or God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. I grew up with God, uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Anybody know it that way? Blessed are the peacemakers, right? So we're going to just talk about this. And I tell you, uh, this is something. So we're going to look at words, right? So we're going to start with the basics. Peace, okay, the Greek word for peace is Irene. Do you ever wonder, wonder where the, 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 the English uh, name Irene comes from this? Irene means peace. Greek Irene, and it marries the word poeos, which means to make, peace, maker, okay? That's where we're going to start. That's where we're going to start. But it changes pretty quick, Okay? Because I think in our culture, we have misunderstood the word peace. And we have lost sight of what the word peace meant to Jesus and meant to his hearers and meant and means to God. And I will say it simply this way. Peace does not simply mean, biblical peace does not simply mean the absence of conflict. That's where we get screwed up. We think that if there's no blowing up going over here with this person, we think that if there's no rumblings over here at our work, if, there's, if our kids are being relatively quiet, moms, if you get a nap today and the house is quiet, you might think that's peace. That's not biblical peace. It might be valuable. <laughs> I hope you have a quiet day, but don't confuse that with biblical peace, okay? Biblical peace goes way beyond that. Biblical peace is something called shalom. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, what he's talking about here is the word shalom. Anybody ever heard that word? It's a Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom doesn't mean 
that two nations aren't fighting anymore. It doesn't mean that two coworkers are not, you know, passive-aggressively stealing each other's pens. Shalom does not mean that your brother and your 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 brother and, and, and sisters are are not just like tolerating each other. Shalom is way way beyond that. Let me start by just reading a passage from the prophet Ezekiel. Hey hey, just a sec, let me start. if you're new to the faith and you want to start reading the Bible, do all the pastoral staff a favor. Don't start with Ezekiel. Okay, just don't. Just write that down. Don't start reading Ezekiel because we'll have to have a lot of meetings with you and explain a lot of stuff. But at one point, uh, Ezekiel says this in chapter 34. This is God speaking through the prophet. God will say, I will make a covenant of peace, of shalom. I will make a covenant of peace with my people and drive away the dangerous animals from the land. Then they will be able to camp safely in the wildest places and sleep in the woods without fear. I will bless my people and their homes around my holy hill. And in the proper season, I will send the showers they need. They will be showers of blessing. The orchards and fields of my people will yield bumper crops and everyone will live in safety. When I have broken their chains of slavery and rescued from those who enslaved them, then they will know that I am the Lord. They will no longer be prey for other nations. Wild animals will no longer devour them. They will live in safety. No one will frighten them, and I will make their land famous for its crops, so my people will never again suffer from famines or the insults of foreign nations. That's a vision of shalom. It is well-being. It is security. It is rest. It is provision. It's not having your little brother be quiet for 45 minutes so you can finish your Xbox game. That's not peace. Peace is when everything is right in the world. Um, one of my favorite theologians, a guy named Walter Brueggemann, says this, and just take, just receive this, okay? The persistent vision of joy, well-being, harmony, and prosperity is not captured in any single word or idea in the Bible, and a cluster of words is required to express its many dimensions and subtle nuances. So what he's saying here is that um, this is what God wants for us in a sense. Love, loyalty, truth, grace, salvation, justice, blessing, righteousness. That sound like a good life to anybody? Okay. But the term that has been used to summarize that controlling vision is shalom. Shalom, salvation, loyalty, justice, righteousness, way beyond the absence of conflict. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the people who make shalom. So, the second half of that word, peace, shalom, maker. That's another one of those phrases I wish was not in the Bible. Because I think everybody in, the ha- in, in this room would give an amen and a hands up to the fact if Jesus would have said, hey, blessed are the peace lovers. Everybody would be like, yes, Jesus, yes, amen, brother, amen, go ahead, preach. But when Jesus says peacemaker, 
Everyone's like, oh, I think I got to get to Sonny's, get a good table. It's a little late. I don't think I heard that part of the message. Peacemaker. Shalom maker. Wholeness, loyalty, righteousness, justice, mercy, maker. Oh, man, Jesus. The phrase that's been re- resonating in my head this week is, is to realize uh, that shalom doesn't just happen. You don't drift into shalom, just like you don't drift into the not my will but yours prayer that we talked about in the garden. You do not drift into making shalom. You set two nations, just set them adrift, right? War is probably going to happen unless it's like the United States and Canada because the Canadians are so stinking nice. Shalom does not happen by drift. If you want shalom and you want world, if you want to see shalom in the world, you got to make it. If you just sit around and twiddle your thumbs, you might get absence of conflict on a good day. If everybody wakes up and they're all rested and they've drank just the right amount of coffee. But I want to suggest you, if you want to see shalom in the world, this part of your body has to get up out of its chair and do something. And this is what gets us. Because a lot of us really don't want to make peace or we really don't know how. Again, we might get the absence of conflict, but do you get, how do you get to unity? You got to make it. You have to make it. Part of my desire to preach, and I, I flat out asked Mark and Dan, if I, can I preach this? And it came out of this thing I just read once where this artist said, and I think this is really cool, the Greek word for maker is poeos, right? That word is also meant to indicate the author of a book, the creator of a work of art. And that started clicking in my head. I don't always know how to do a peacemaker. I I don't know how to wade into a conflict and make something. But you know what? I've made things before. I've created things. And the author of this book said, what if we all thought of each other, all thought of our, our job here as to be peace poets, shalom poets, wholeness poets, wholeness authors, wholeness composers. You have to make something and bring it to the world to create peace. And that can look like anything. I know some of you guys are still not making the connection. Well, what do I make? What do I make? What do I make? I, I just started emailing people this week, and I, I emailed some songwriters because they make songs, right? They make stuff, right? But then I, saw, I emailed some people who, you know what they do in this, in this community? They help make disciples, growth group leaders. I said, you help make disciples. What's it like to make something? And then I, I emailed some parents because you know what they make? Humans. And I emailed some parents, and I said, what did it feel like to make a human that, that looks somewhat functional in the world, you know? You have something to make. You have something to make. Don't limit making to, to this idea of creating a song or a sculpture. You know what? You can make something by having a conversation that honors Jesus. You can make something by bringing something into the world that has kingdom value. That starts the idea of making shalom. 
getting off your butt and realizing that I have a role to play in the world. God says he wants to bless the peacemakers. So I better get out of my chair and make some shalom. But there's still, there's still this gap of how do I get started? And what I want you to feel is I want you to feel so deeply that making peace is not easy, but it's possible. We look at the world. It's not, easy, it's not difficult to look at the world and go, there is war and strife everywhere. The Middle East, our country, between ethnic groups, between races, between socioeconomic classes, between political parties. Hello, amen? Well, you don't need to look long to find war and strife. But you know what? I've just looked a little bit this week, and there are people out there making peace. There are people out there who are sitting down with families in the Holy Land, families of Palestinians and families of Israelis who have lost family members, and they're sitting down and they're saying, the war has got to stop. And you know the only way it's going to stop is if we do something about it. There are people uh, that I read about, heard about in, in Baltimore this week that said, you know what? We don't know who's right. We don't know who's wrong. It's got to stop. And they got off their tails and they did something. Shalom ain't going to happen by sitting here. Okay? It's not going to happen by sitting in this church for an hour, hour and a half on Sunday. You got to go make it. And here's just a couple conceptual things to maybe, if you have an area of your life, a relationship, or something you're passionate about that needs some shalom, here's a couple things you got to embrace, okay? Peacemaking is not winning. That's what a lot of us want peacemaking to be. Well, when I get this, per when I get this person to understand that my point is right, then we will have a little peace. Peacemaking is not losing. Peacemaking is not, well, I guess, whatever. You're stronger. You have the louder voice. So you have the bigger temper. So you win, okay? It's not even tolerance. Now, this gets, whoa, wait, wait a minute, what? Peacemaking is not tolerance. Peacemaking is not pretending that there's no difference between you and me. You think a Palestinian family and an Israeli family can sit there and go, well, we actually have a lot in common. All those years of history, of war, of strife between us, let's pretend they didn't happen. That's not the way you get to peace. Peace looks at another person and says, there's a difference between you and me. And I want to know about it. I can't pretend that I'm right and you're wrong anymore because bottom line is I don't know who you are as a person. I don't know the life you've lived. What I've learned and what I'm learning in my life is that peacemaking requires for you to surrender your idea that you own the truth. Because a lot of times we'll sit down with somebody and we want to talk to them and we say, we need some, we have some conflict here we need to work through. 
I'm different. We got a thing between us. But the first thing you have to do is you have to say, I surrender my, the idea that I know what's right in the world. Because bottom line is I've not walked in your shoes. And I may never agree with you, but in order to bring some wholeness and some unity to the world, I will listen to you. Tell me your story. Help me understand who you are. Because there's something bigger at stake here. The war has got to stop. The conflict has to stop. But before it can stop, I have to lay down the idea that I know everything about the world. Because guess what? You don't. And neither do I. I found it very interesting. I just have a, uh, a couple more uh, thoughts. I found it very interesting that the Latin and Greek word for devil is essentially diabolos. And you know what that means at its core? It means to divide. That the word for devil and demon is essentially the word for divide. When God says the vision for peace and shalom is unity, not groupthink. I guarantee you, you line up people, you will find a million ways to divide us in this community, but one way to unite us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And a love of this world that God created. But in order to get there, we have to say, I want to surrender my right to think about all the things that can divide me from you and let's talk about the things that can unite us. But first, tell me who you are. Tell me your story. And what does Jesus say we get out of this? We get to be the children of God. I have a temper. Um, there's one incident in my life. Uh, we, were, we weren't even married yet, and we were shopping for wedding rings. And we went into this jeweler in the mall. And I can't remember if I had long hair or whatever, but I, get, I can tell you, we didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't dress very nice. I was still a little bit more of a rock and roller than anything else. And Shana and I are standing and we're waiting for the salesperson to pay attention to us. And we're waiting and we're waiting. Anybody ever been here? And we had like the salesperson talk to a person over here and then walk right by us and go talk to a person over here. And man, that was it. I stormed out. I was like, I was like, damn, I swear. You know, and I was like, you know, like, you know, and, and she caught up to me. And she was like, you are so embarrassing. And I'm like, no, don't you get that person, you know? And she was like, whatever. I have a temper. You know why I have a temper? Because my dad has a temper, okay? That's why, okay? I have the attributes of my father. The older I get, the more people say, Eric, you look just like your dad. Clyde Ellsworth Case. He forbade us from using any of his names for our children. <laughs> when you make shalom, you take on the attributes of your father. Because God makes shalom. 
And God does not wait for us to get our act together. He does not wait for us to clean up and to get all on his agenda before he says, come on, we got to be together on this. He didn't wait. God surrenders, even though God knows everything about the world there is to know, guess what? He says, hey, tell me about you. Tell me your story. Because there's something bigger at stake here than me looking at you and just going, man, you fell down again. You drank too much again. You looked at porn again. You cheated again. Does God do that? He knows everything. He knows all of those things. And you know what he still says? That's all right. Come on. Come on. Let's work it out. There's something bigger at stake than the war between me and you. We take on the attributes of being a peacemaker because that's what our father does. And he doesn't just do it this way. Look real quick with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 or 11, I actually think. I'm going to read it actually here. Carl, if you can put that slide up. Don't, oh, interesting. Oh, interesting still. (laughs) Leave it there. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united the Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Other translation says that Christ is our peace. You got to understand that in the first church, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. And we're talking racial hatred. We're talking ethnic hatred. And even back then, Jesus was in the business of saying, hey, you got this thing between you. You guys aren't the same. You have a different story. You have a different agendas. You have a different way of looking at the world. But guess what? You got to sit down and have some conversations because I didn't create a church to be fractured. I created a church to have shalom, to have unity. That's what I did. So, how do you do it? How does God do it? He surrendered his rights, didn't he? That's what Philippians 2 said. If you sit down with somebody, you want to create peace, but you're not willing to surrender your rights, you're not going to get very far. And I suggest you take a look at the way Jesus did it. Because Jesus said, I could be God. That's what Philippians 2 said. I could be God. I am equal to God. I don't have to go to this cross, but I will lay down my rights because there's something bigger at stake. Peacemaking, shalom-making. This world needs it. We need it. And God allows us to do it if we're just willing to become pure in heart, to go, I don't have it together. I don't have it together. I don't know everything that's right in the world, so tell me more about you so we can get some unity together. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together.